I'm going to read the first six verses of chapter 21, and then we're going to continue through the, the chapter. It says in chapter 21, Then Job answered and said, Listen carefully to my speech, and let this be your consolation. Bear with me that I may speak, and after I have spoken, keep mocking. As for me, is my complaint against man? And if it were, why should I not be impatient? Look at me and be astonished. Put your hand over your mouth. Even when I remember I am terrified and trembling takes hold of my flesh, why do the wicked live and become old, yes, become mighty in power? Their descendants are established with them in their sight and their offspring before their eyes. Their houses are safe from fear. Neither is the rod of God upon them. Their bull breeds without failure. Their cows calve without miscarriage. They send forth their little ones like a flock. They sing to the tambourine and harp and rejoice to the sound of the flute. They spend their days in wealth and in a moment go down to the grave Yet they say to God, depart from us, for we do not desire the knowledge of your ways. Who is the Almighty that we should serve him? And what profit do we have if we pray to him? If indeed their prosperity is not in their hand, the counsel of the wicked is far from me. I know I said I was only going to go to 11, but hey, I was on a roll. Remember the book of Job, it spotlights this question of suffering. More specifically, it asks the question, why do the righteous suffer? Why do bad things happen to good people? It prompts questions about God's sovereignty and God's mercy and God's wisdom. And in the book, Job's friends opt for an easy answer. I know the answer. I know the answer. The reason why you're suffering, Job, is you're wicked. God punishes the wicked. He rewards the righteous. Later in the book, by the way, Elihu will at least explore the possibility that people suffer in part, perhaps, because people need to be purified. But in the present chapter, Job replies to Zophar's latest claim. Remember that God judges the wicked in this present life. And Zophar's claims included the wicked suffer horrible, painful, tragic lives. They're gripped by greed and covetousness. They oppress and appropriate from the innocent things that don't belong to them. The wicked wind up losing everything in the end. And Zophar's speech in a nutshell goes like this. The wicked live... A short, terrifying, painful life. And then they die. Some have called this the law of retribution. In our own culture and society, some people call it the law of karma. You get what you sow, you sow what you reap. And is it true? Is there an element of truth that you do sow and you do reap? The problem is it's not the whole truth. It's not the complete truth. Job responds, wait a minute, wait a minute, you've got something wrong here. Job will point out the reality that sometimes the wicked live a long life, a prosperous life. Sometimes the wicked live a relatively trouble-free life. They sometimes pass on their wealth to the children. The wicked sometimes dodge the bullets of adversity and calamity and punishment and discipline. In this life, the wicked sometimes live long Long and prosperous lives. And so Job states the obvious. Sometimes the wicked prosper in verses 1 through 18. And Job rejects the theory that justice is served when people like Zophar or people like Eliphaz or people like uh, Nadab or just these people 
say, hey, look, if it doesn't happen to you, then it's going to happen to your children. But in the end, the painful, painful reality is going to be visited either on you or your children. And Job points out that he rejects the theory that justice is served when the children of the ungodly are punished in verses 19 through 21. He points out that that death will come to the good and the bad alike in verses 22 through 26. And so Job is addressing the speech and the criticism of the people who say, well, you know what? Maybe it's better to just live a life of rebellion and disobedience and sinfulness. You see, Job isn't the first first person. He is, well, technically in the Bible, he's going to become the technically the first person who asks the question, why do the wicked prosper? David is going to repeat the question, why does, do the wicked prosper? Jeremiah is going to repeat the question, why do the wicked prosper? Why, why does it seem that if you do everything, everything right, sometimes really bad things happen to you? And if you do everything wrong, things seem to go good for you. Do the wicked really reap the rewards of their sin in this life? Again, McKenna writes, quote, Zophar's one-sided view of the wicked pushes Job to show the extreme. Point by point, he shows the wicked are happy, not despairing, prosperous, not poor, mighty, not weak, Healthy, not afflicted, peaceful, not terrorized. Furthermore, their families are safe and joyous. Job also destroys the argument that the judgment of the wicked is passed on to future generations. Why, he asks, should the children suffer when they're not guilty? With final irony, Job will point out that the wicked have a quick and easy death attended by an elaborate funeral. For the first time, Job pronounces that he thinks that the whole theory that the good people, righteous people, always have good things happen to them. And that wicked people, unrighteous people, always have bad things happen to them. Verse 1. Then Job answered and said, Listen carefully to my speech and let this be your consolation. Now remember, if Job's friends were ever going to be a source of comfort or encouragement, they're going to need to listen. They're going to need to listen carefully. And this is interesting. Remember, remember, remember. Job's friends have given speeches theoretical analysis of the theological implications of why bad things happen and good things happen and the issue of suffering. And this is interesting. Job's friends have said awful things, hurtful things, mean things. But their caricature of God and their bad theology has not eroded Job's view of God. The friends have come to Job to try and give him consolation. And yet, Job says, you've come here to comfort me. That hasn't worked out so well. So I'm going to comfort you. In what sense? In the sense that Job's sufferings and painful experiences have led his friends to mock him and Job, in effect, is going to say, look, your presence and your speech have degenerated into painful mocking. I just need you to listen to me. I just need you to give me a fair hearing. I need you to listen to what I have to say without hostility. 
If you'll just listen to what I have to say and then you decide you want to make fun of me and you want to mock me and you want to ridicule me and you want to trivialize my circumstance, that's fine. And by the way, the word listen carries at least two ideas. It carries the idea of of saying, whenever you say or whenever I say, listen up or please listen to me. It's an invitation, a call for someone's undivided and undistracted attention. When someone wants to make a case, sometimes my wife will look at me very carefully and she'll say, I need you to listen to me. Now, when she says that, she means more then stop interrupting me. She means think carefully what I'm saying. Put your brain and listen to what I'm saying rather than trying to come up with an argument or a response to what I'm saying. I need you to just stop and listen and give me a fair hearing. And that's what Job is asking for. Now remember also, he says in verse 3, Bear with me that I may speak. And after I have spoken, keep mocking. Job tries to bring some sanity and some sensibility back into the conversation. Remember, there's been a lot of mocking, a lot of hostility, a lot of horrible, terrible things have been said. He begs his friends, cease the attack. Look at me. Listen to what I have to say. Now when he says, bear with me, and he says, after I've spoken, keep mocking, does does Job really want his friends to continue mocking? I don't think that that's the point of the passage. I think that part of the point of the passage is, if we're going to have a decent conversation, if we're really, really going to stop talking past one another. It's going to require speaking and hearing. But mocking is sometimes the last stop that leads to a final breakup. If you've ever been involved in an angry argument, if you've ever been involved in hateful words, if you've ever been involved in a heated discussion, and one person starts mocking the other, Where is this conversation eventually going to lead? It's going to lead nowhere. It's going to come to a dramatic and an abrupt end. I want you to think about what you're reading in this passage, even as Job speaks. I want you to think about something. And that is that Job is trying to change the climate of the conversation. And so in verse 4, he says, as for me... Is my complaint against man? And if it were, why should I not be impatient? In other words, Job may or may not be looking for sympathy and understanding. It may have gotten to the point where Job is saying, it's not sympathy and understanding I'm expecting from you at this point. When he says, as for me, is my complaint against man? It it could very well be... Is my complaint against you? And if it were, why should I not be impatient? I'm going to suggest to you that Job's impatience is less with his friends and more with the fact that God doesn't seem to be listening. Remember, Job has no explanation for God's silence. Job knows who he is. He knows what he's done. He knows about his heart. He knows about his prayers. He knows about the worship. He knows about the real life that he has before God. This isn't some sort of game that he's playing in order to impress his friends. We've already learned, remember, from the first and the second chapter, that Job is a righteous man. That he's loved by God. He is seen by God. And when you look at his, his love, his devotion, his worship, his commitment, there's nobody like him. And Job doesn't have an explanation for God's silence. Job is in effect saying, I cry out to God and I get nothing. I listen to you 
and I get rebuke. And so in verse 5 he says, look at me and be astonished. Put your hand over your mouth. By the way, for those of you who have been following along in the book of Job, you'll remember that this is the second time in the book that Job has said, I need you to look at me. Remember the first time was in chapter 6, verse 8, where he said, Now, therefore, look at me, for I would never lie to your face. Now he repeats the statement, look at me. Because I think that part of the implication is that the speeches that the people have been giving, it hasn't been looking at Job face to face. It's almost as if they've got an audience, as if some crowd has gathered together and they're giving a sermon to the, to the masses and they're not looking at Job. In the last chapter, Zophar has painted this caricature, this picture of his own idea of a mythical wicked man. But as he's speaking, it's starring Job. It's easy to paint a picture. It's easy to draw a cartoon character. It's easy to make a caricature out of people that we know and look right past them. And so for the second time, Job says, I need you to look at me. And when he says that, it isn't just the simple statement that you and I would make to one another when we say to one another, look in my eyes. Look at my face. Look at me. It means way more. When he says, look at me, he's saying, look at my life. Look at my past. Look at my present. Look at the integrity of my life and our friendship. Look at how we have been together over the years. He appeals to the integrity of his life. He appeals to their friendship in the past. Now you've got to understand something that's remarkable about the speech that's being made. In spite of all of the horrible and wicked and terrible things that have been said to him. He's trying to hold on to the friendship. Don't you find that amazing? You see, for those people who have had only few friends in their life, they understand the importance of holding on to the people that have come into your life through the good times and through the bad times and through the difficult times. He's in effect saying, look at the suffering on my face. Look at the pain in my eyes. Now cover your mouth as you begin to see the suffering. And allow the trial to take your breath away. In other words, here's what he's doing. Instead of just thinking of the theological implications of suffering, I want you to look at me. Now remember, his form is pretty horrible. He's dehydrated. He's emaciated. He's covered with pungent pus and sores. His appearance is shocking. Now let me ask you a question. You don't have to cry out. You don't have to tell me the dirty details. But have you ever seen something so shocking, so horrifying, that it took your breath away? That you literally, when you saw it, you went, You covered your mouth. You couldn't even comprehend what it was that you were looking at. You were completely at a loss for words. I remember many times in my life where that's happened. When I saw a group of bloated bodies floating down a river in Rwanda because of a mass murder. I remember seeing the crime scene. At the Aurora Movie Theater, all of the blood, all of the difficulty. You see something that is so shocking, 
so horrifying, so terrible, that the only response that you have is not judgment or words, it's simply sympathy and compassion. And you don't have an explanation for what you see. And Job doesn't necessarily expect an explanation from his friends. He is not looking for an explanation from his friends. He's looking for an explanation from God. The friends aggressively have attempted to say, Job, repent and die. Job, get help. Job, admit that there's something wrong with you. And Job has only longed for kindness and support and sympathy. And he even says in verse 6, even when I remember I'm terrified, When he says, when I pause and I see and I'm looking at my circumstance, it scares the wits out of me. And trembling takes hold of my flesh. Even Job, here's what he's saying. That he's truly alarmed. He's truly frightened by his condition. And he's at a loss. He loves the Lord. He trusts the Lord. He believes the Lord. And because he loves the Lord, and he trusts the Lord, and he believes the Lord, and he looks at the circumstances of his life, and he can't explain it, and it leaves him trembling. Paul says in Romans chapter 15, verse 1, We then who are strong ought to bear with the infirmities of the weak, and not to please ourselves. Elsewhere in Galatians 6, it says, Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ there are times again when something happens that it is not an explanation that is going to be the first thing that comes out of your mouth and then job's point the wick now he's going to address the issues of zophar he's after saying all of this he says in verse 7 why do the wicked live And become old. Yes, become mighty in power. Here's what Job is doing. He's going to punch a few holes in the so-called law of retribution. And and Zophar's magnificent, wonderful, beautiful sermon. Which just doesn't happen to be true. Zophar has basically said, wicked live wicked lives. And their wickedness catches up with them. And Job says, well, if that's true, then how do you explain old wicked people being around? If the wicked are judged in this life and the righteous are rewarded in this life, then how do you explain the wicked living a long and prosperous life? And how do you explain the righteous and the innocent sometimes experiencing unspeakable horrors? In Zophar's world, in Zophar's theology, God punishes the wicked quickly. He rewards the righteous quickly. Will God judge the wicked? Yes. Will God judge the wicked swiftly? It all depends on what you mean by swiftly. You might think, I want that murderer to die today. I want that serial killer to die today. You know, when I think about all of the people that were murdered and injured at the Aurora movie theater, and I see his trial unfolding, and I see how a month will become a year, and how a, a year will become two years and three years, and that, and then that if, if the trial finally happens and he's finally uh, convicted, and then he finally goes to jail, and even if he gets the death penalty, that it will be appealed one time, and then it will be appealed another time, and if if it's just a normal, if it's a random murder at a grocery store, it's going to take fifteen years. But when you're talking about a horrible, terrible thing that has been done like this has been done it could very well be that it that he never experiences what i would call justice after the columbine murders there was a murder at the subway sandwich shop just right around the corner 
on the corner of Pierce and Coal Mine. A man came into the Subway sandwich shop. There were people working. A man was closing. His girlfriend came by, and both of them were executed. They, were, they got down on their knees. The gunman shot them in the back of the head and then dragged their body to the end of the store. I was there the very next morning with the police as, again, as, as they're investigating. He's never been caught. This person, a suspect has never been arrested. A person has never been caught. And someone might say, how do you explain this? How is it possible that wicked people can do evil things and they get away with it? The question is going to be repeated over and over and over. In Psalm 37.1, David says, Do not fret because of evildoers, nor be envious of the workers of iniquity, for they shall soon be cut down like grass, and wither as the green herb. The psalmist says, Trust in the Lord. Psalm 37, verse 3 says, Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and feed on his faithfulness. Delight yourself also in the Lord. He will give you the desires of your heart. Chet, Read earlier in Psalm 3, acknowledge the Lord. In all your ways, acknowledge him. He's going to direct your path. Jeremiah chapter 12, verse 1 says, Righteous are you, O Lord, when I plead with you. You let me talk with you about your judgments. Why does the way of the wicked prosper? Why are those happy who deal so treacherously? And how does God answer Jeremiah? God warns Jeremiah of an even greater opposition that's going to come. And the reality that Jerusalem is going to be taken. And the children of Israel imprisoned. Job begins to understand something. Remember, there is no Bible There's no Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. The Psalms have never been written. David has never lived. As Job is asking these questions, as as Job is thinking about these things, Job understands that God is sovereign and that God is in control and that there's a good God, a Lord who is working. We begin to understand that God is causing all things to work together for good for those who love him. But we don't necessarily see all of the intricacies. Job offers seven facts about the wicked. And he does so to refute Zophar's flawed belief that the wicked are punished. And the righteous reward. I'm going to do it very quickly. Look what it says in verse 8. He says, their descendants are established with them in their sight and their offspring before their house. Verse 9, their houses are safe from fear. So here's what he says. The seven things that he offers. Number one, the children and the grandchildren of the wicked grow up. Do some wicked people see their children grow up? Yes. Do they see their children have children? Yes. So Job, pointing out Zophar's flawed theology, says, wait a minute, wait a minute. If the wicked always get what they deserve and they get it right away, then how do you explain that they have children and that their children have children and that they see them grow up? And then number two, that the homes of the wicked are safe and that there's no evidence that God's discipline is upon them. In verse 9 it says, their houses are safe from fear. Neither is the rod of God upon them. In other words, there's no apparent proof. There's no evidence of God's discipline. We know in the New Testament that the Bible says God disciplines his own children. That one of the evidences that you are a child of God is that God doesn't let you get away with stuff. Have you ever had this prayer? My my son used to pray it a lot. Lord, why don't you ever let me get away with stuff? The very fact that you don't get away with stuff is proof positive that God loves you. That he's disciplining you. And so 
He says, number three, that the business of the wicked are prosperous. In verse 10, it says, their bull breeds without failure, their cow calves without miscarriage. This may not mean a whole lot to you and I because we're not in the cattle business. But if you lived in the ancient world, this was their economy. The economy was bulls and cows and the replication of bulls and cows because bulls and cows provide meat and milk and and an economy and so it's a euphemism if you will for business it's his way of saying the business of the wicked are prosperous in verse 11 the children of the wicked are happy and healthy and playful verse 11 they send forth their little ones like a flock and their children Dance, the idea being, hey, wait a minute, this doesn't seem indicative of a miserable life. Number five, the families of the wicked enjoy parties, festivals, special occasions. Verse 12, they sing to the tambourine and harp and rejoice to the sound of the flute. They go to concerts. They have songs loaded on their iPods. There's just this incredible party atmosphere. Parties, festivals, special occasions. Verse 13, they spend their days in wealth. And in a moment, they go down to the grave. The years of the wicked are spent in prosperity and comfort. That's number six. And number seven, the death of the wicked seems not horrible and terrible and tragic. Are there ever times when the wicked people die peaceful in their sleep? And they have a gigantic funeral. And everybody attends. Wait, wait, wait. Are you saying that the lives of the righteous and the wicked on the surface look very, very similar? That's exactly what Job is arguing. How do you tell a righteous person from a wicked person? Is, is it like the New Testament pictures that we see of Jesus glowing in the dark? That you can tell that a person is righteous because there's this halo. You can see this bright glow. Ooh, there's, an, there's a light emanating from their head or their hands. And you go, I can tell the righteous because one has a dark wicked cloud and the other one has a luminous light over them. No, not really. Both enjoy the blessings of family. Both enjoy work. Both sometimes enjoy long lives. Both enjoy peaceful deaths. And God's judgment doesn't look all that different. When you look at their earthly life, Because we aren't able to see beyond the earthly life. And so, in verse 13, they spend their days in wealth. In a moment, they go down to the grave. Some people are born rich. Some people make huge amounts of money. Job's point is, hey, some people get rich and stay rich. And some people get rich, stay rich, and pass it on to their children. Is that true? Is it true that there are people who may have gotten their money through ill-gotten gains, they pass it on to their children, and their children are wealthy, and their children's children are wealthy, and it has nothing to do with righteousness, and it has nothing to do with, quote-unquote, evil in the sense that you don't necessarily tell. And so that's the point that he's making. The prosperous remain prosperous right up to the time of their death. They die with hardly any struggle. I remember a song by um, an artist in the 1980s who used to sing a song that went something like, there aren't too many horses in Oakland. At least that's what the mothers say. So they line the streets to take a look at the police, take a look at the guy on his funeral day. He's singing a song about a drug dealer who has this gigantic funeral. They line the streets. In verse 14, yet they say to God, depart from us, 
For we do not desire the knowledge of your ways. Who is the Almighty that we should serve him? And what profit do we have if we pray to him? This is a conversation that probably many of you have had with your family, with your friends, that people who are close to you. They say to God, depart from us. We don't want to have anything to do with God. We don't have any desire to know the ways of God. Who is the Almighty that we should serve him? It doesn't make sense to be a Christian. It doesn't make sense to go to church. It doesn't make sense to honor God. Who is God that we should even care about God? Job doesn't dispute that the wicked simply reject God, resist God, refuse God. Job is having the same conversation. Now remember, this conversation is taking place between 1700 BC and 1800 BC. To put it in perspective, the the, the pyramids have long been built. The Minoan Empire is in Crete and we're 700 years away from David. We're still with the Egyptians and the children of Israel in bondage in Egypt, when all of this stuff is happening, did Job really mock God or reject God or resist God? And see, this is part of the point that that he's making. Remember Zophar's speech. Remember what Zophar has accused Job. Job has basically said, or Zophar has said of Job, You're not really a righteous person. You're really a wicked person. And the reason why all of this bad stuff is happening to you is because you're a wicked person. And so when he's speaking of the wicked and he says to them, depart from me. We don't desire the knowledge of your ways. Why should we serve you? Why should we pray for you? It is the exact opposite of the character of Job. It is the exact opposite of the way that he's lived his life. When other people said, depart from us, Job said, I want to know you. I want to know you. I want to have a relationship with you. For we don't desire the knowledge of your ways. Job is saying, I do want to know your ways. Who is the Almighty that we should serve him? Job says, I want to know who the Almighty is. And I want to love him and serve him. And he prays to him. He does exactly the opposite of what the wicked does. He loves the Lord. He prays to the Lord. He worships the Lord. And so does the plight of the wicked really answer the issue of Job's suffering and circumstance? The answer is no. Can we look at other people's misfortune, the tragedy, the victory? Can we look at another person's life and all of the good things that happen and all of the bad things that happen and get an idea? Of their spiritual condition. If that's the only thing that you look at. The answer is no. Does the presence or the absence of misfortune. Mean the presence or the absence. Of God's favor. Or God's disfavor. In verse 16 he says. Indeed their prosperity is not in their hand. The counsel of the wicked is far. From me. What does Job mean? Indeed. Their prosperity is not in their hand. Do you understand what Job is saying? Job is basically saying, in the end, even though you may not believe this, in the end, ultimately, God is sovereign. You see, the rich might think, I'm rich because I'm smart. Smarter than everyone else. I'm rich because I had a great idea. I'm rich because I worked harder than anybody else's work. I'm rich because of all of my education, my experience, all of that stuff. I'm rich. I'm rich because of who I am. And Job is basically saying, I know that it's going to sound crazy, but God is in charge and God is in control and God is sovereign. And God allows certain people to amass huge amounts of wealth. By the way, if you look at the richest man in the world, and the second richest man in the world, and the third richest man in the world, and the fourth richest man in the world, 
and the fifth richest man in the world, and you do a careful examination of their life and their circumstances and their spiritual regimen, are you left with the impression that they love the Lord, that they're committed Christians, and that they read their Bible? Now, they may do wonderful things and have wonderful charities, and that becomes part of the point. Indeed, their prosperity is not in their hand. The idea being... God allows certain people to be rich for reasons that we don't always understand. The counsel of the wicked is far from me. The Bible rejects the notion of a person being a self-made man. And in the end, God allows some people to have wealth, some people not to have wealth. And so when Job says, the counsel of the wicked is far from me, he is basically saying, I've never entertained the notions of the wicked and embraced them as my own. And so his next point, the punishment and discipline of the wicked aren't immediate. Contrary to what has been told. He says in verse 17, how often is the lamp of the wicked put out? That means when he says the lamp of the wicked put out, he means their life snuffed out dramatically, unexpectedly, prematurely. How often does their destruction come upon them? The sorrows God distributes in his anger. Job's questions carry a lot of skepticism. Job is basically saying to them, in the real world in which you live, if your theology is correct, if your understanding of God is correct, if your understanding of prosperity and suffering are correct, shouldn't it be reflected in the very real world in which you live? How often do you see the wicked suddenly, unexpectedly, dying? Well, there are circumstances where it happens happens are there very wealthy people who die in their 30s and 40s and the answer is yes you see part of the challenge that we have is when we look at that word righteous and wicked and we detach ourselves from the biblical definitions of those words when the bible is using the word wicked and righteous it doesn't mean serial killer wicked righteous people who are basically good When the Bible is using the term wicked and righteous, the wicked are those people who reject God, who reject the Lord, who reject the revelation of God and the majesty of God and the glory of God, the beauty of God, the righteousness of God. And the the righteous are those people who acknowledge the Lord and love him and serve him and worship him. In verse 18, he says, they are like... Straw before the wind. And like chaff that a storm carries away. They say God lays up one's iniquity for his children. Let him recompense him that he may know it. Job is going to address the common belief that has already been spoken. Which he rejects in its entirety. For the person who says well you know what. Let's just for purposes of illustration say that the wicked don't always get what they deserve. Well, guess what? If the wicked don't get what they deserve, then it's up to the children to cash in the wicked's chips. In other words, Job is asking the question, will God punish a person's children for the crimes or the sins of their parents? Job is saying, I don't even believe that, even for a minute. In Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 16, the Bible says, The fathers shall not be put to death for their children, nor shall the children be put to death for their fathers. A person shall be put to death for his own sin. The same sentiment is repeated in Ezekiel chapter 18, verses 1 through 8. And of course, remember in John chapter 9, verses 1 through 3, when the disciples asked the question, who sinned, this guy or his parents, that he was born blind? And you remember the New Testament story. Jesus says, neither this guy nor his parents, but rather that the glory of God would be revealed. Are there consequences? Do children sometimes suffer because of their parents' poor choices? I think that the answer is yes. 
But must children suffer in order to equal some cosmic scorecard that God keeps in heaven? The Bible doesn't seem to indicate that that's true. In verse 20, it says, let his eyes see his destruction and let him drink of the wrath of the Almighty. In other words, let the wicked get what they deserve. Verse 21, for what does he care about his household after him when the number of his months is cut in half? In other words, for the truly wicked who truly die young, do they really care about their children? Now again, part of the point being the horrible and terrible things that have been said about the horrific loss of Job, the loss of his children. How did Job treat his children? He loved them. He prayed for them. He worshipped and he made sacrifices for them. The children were a priority in his life. If you look again, just go all the way back to chapter 1, verse 5. It says, so it was when the days of feasting had run their course that Job would send and sanctify them. And he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, it may be that my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did regularly he loved them and prayed for them so job argues that the wicked aren't always punished immediately the consequences aren't transferred to their children retribution doesn't necessarily take place at the time of death and so job accuses his friends of an uncomfortable arrogance that they assume way too much that they assume that they know only things that god can know and they twist their speeches, and they twist their facts to fit their doctrine, and they're guilty of trying to teach God the truth about reality, righteousness, and justice. And so he says in verse 22, can anyone teach God knowledge since he judges those on high? And the question is more than just a rhetorical question. The answer is, of course not. Can anyone say, God, aren't you glad I'm here? I'm here to just let you know about some things that you're unaware of. Yeah, can you imagine the absurdity of that conversation? God, clearly, if you had the information that I have, you would have made a different decision. See, you understand where I'm going with this. Every time we pray a prayer, Lord, do you really know what you're doing? (laughs) That's a dangerous prayer. It's not a thoughtful prayer. It's not a biblical prayer. And he makes a final point. Look at verse 23. One dies in his full strength, being wholly at ease and secure. He's basically saying, wait a minute. It's been my experience that sometimes the wicked don't die horrible, traumatic, terrible deaths. Like that horrible joke I tell you about the guy who said, I don't want to die like those. How does the joke go? Now I've lost it. Oh, I don't want to die like those people in the car yelling and screaming, being terrified for their life. I want to die like my grandpa did when he fell asleep at the wheel. (laughs) You know, it's like if you want to die peacefully in your sleep, Job is basically saying, look, I know people who are fit, and healthy, and they die suddenly and unexpectedly. You probably know people like that yourself. I have a friend whose son was in his 40s, and he was an athlete and a runner and a marathon runner. 
And he was fit. He ate right. He exercised. He was fit and he would go out and then he ran and his, had a heart attack. And he dropped dead at the age of 40. A young man mowing the lawn, pushing a lawnmower at the age of 27, drops dead. Is it possible that you can be young and fit and in the prime of life and then all of a sudden, for reasons that we don't understand, die? One dies healthy. One dies prosperous. One dies in poverty. One dies in bitterness. One dies in sorrow. In verse 24, it says, His pails are full of milk, and the marrow of his bones is moist. The word pails is very interesting in the Hebrew language. It can refer to milk containers, or it can be a figurative expression of the fatness of a person's body. It's the only time it ever appears in the Hebrew text. And so scholars are split in why they make such a big deal. But he's basically saying that some people are really fat when they die. In verse 25, another man dies in the bitterness of his soul, never having eaten with pleasure. They, die, they lie down in the dust and worms cover them. Look, I know your thoughts and the schemes with which you would wrong me. This is Job's way of saying, look, all of those speeches that you've given in chapter 20, in chapter 18, in chapter 15, in chapter 13, I know they were about me. That's what he's saying. I know your thoughts. I know that you're talking about me. I know that when you speak about the wicked and the problem with the wicked and the tragic circumstances of the wicked, I know that you're talking about me. I need you to have the courage to say what you mean and mean what you say. Job says the schemes, the inferences, the innuendos, all of this kind of stuff that's going on. I know that you're talking about me. In verse 28, for you say, where's the house of the prince and where is the tent, the dwelling place of the wicked? Again, remember in chapter 8, verse 22, one of them said that the dwelling place of the wicked will come to nothing. He's the prince. He understands that his tragic circumstances have for the most part left him as close to homeless as you can be. In verse 29, have you not asked those who travel the road and do you not know their signs? And so here the signs refer to the evidence of the experiences. He's basically saying, you're saying all of these things, but that that doesn't really add up and that isn't consistent with the very real world in which we live. In verse 30, for the wicked are reserved for the day of doom. They shall be brought out on the day of wrath. The Hebrew expression for the wicked are reserved for can mean spared from. And so it creates a real problem for the Bible teacher Because we have to ask the question, well, exactly again, what does this text say? What is Job saying? What is the point of the passage? And I think that the New King James has it right when it says, for the wicked are reserved for the day of doom. I don't think it means spared from the day of, of doom. I think Job has already refuted the idea that the wicked are punished immediately. But I don't think that he's trying to say that the wicked are never punished. That there's no day of accountability. That some people really will get away with it. And so what about after you die? In verse 31, who condemns his way to his face? And who repays him for what he has done? The idea being, okay, follow my thinking. The wicked live this wicked life. They live a wonderful life. They live a prosperous life. They live what seems like a healthy and relatively problem-free life. And then they die. Who condemns his way to his face and who repays him for what he has done? Yet he shall be brought to the grave and a vigil kept over the tomb. Again, he will be buried. 
He's going to have a funeral. Verse 33, the clods of the valley shall be sweet to him. I know it's an idiomatic expression that's really hard to understand. What are the clods of the valley? This is the place of the burial. This is the graveyard. This is an idiomatic expression where he's saying the clods of the valley shall be sweet to him. The picture is a gigantic funeral. The picture is a large procession. The picture is honor guards. The whole town comes out for miles around and honors this person in their death. The dirt covers their bodies and he uses the expression shall be sweet. Because burying the body covers death. Death is our common destiny. But what of the wicked? What advantages do the wicked have in death? They have large memorials. They have gigantic funerals. Remember the pyramids were built in part to honor the dead. The Taj Mahal, as I had the, the privilege of going to India and visiting the place where the Taj Mahal is. It's one of the most beautiful structures on the face of the planet. And it was made in such a magnificent way. And it only had one function and one function only. And that was to bury the dead. The Taj Mahal was built as a tomb for the Muslim sultan's wife. It was never, ever, ever meant to be lived in. And Job says, but eternity makes no distinction whether you have a grand palace or a modest funeral. And in verse 34 he says, how then can you comfort me with empty words since falsehood remains in your answers? Do you know what he's saying? Job's answer is a rebuke. Job is saying, You have failed to convince me with your flawed theology. One translation puts it this way. And you? Are you trying to comfort me with nonsense? Every answer that you've given me is a lie. Does does nonsense make for comfort? No. Job's friends have a wrong view about God. And they have a wrong view about suffering. And they have a wrong view about Job. But even in all of those circumstances, Job still says... I still care about you. I care about our friendship. I care about our conversation. I'm looking for something from you. Not an explanation for my suffering. I expect to get that from God. Job offers us an amazing insight. Particularly if you've ever had problems, if if you've ever argued with someone, if you've ever been in a heated, heated theological discussion, Job is a wonderful model. He basically says, let's try and bring the hostility level way, way down. Let's try to bring the understanding level way, way up. And Job does something else. He says, if we're going to continue to talk about this subject, we're going to have to do it in a different way. We're going to have to do it in a way where we don't degenerate with our flawed views of God and our simplistic views of suffering And we wind up hurting each other. Can you imagine? The strength. The patience. 
the goodness, the integrity. But Eliphaz is going to give a riveting speech in the next chapter. But we're going to have to save that for next week. Heavenly Father, Lord, as we look at Job and we look at what he's saying, and we ask the question over and over again, well, why do the wicked prosper? Why do the righteous suffer? And Lord, we think of all of the people who have chosen not to love the Lord and not to pray to the Lord and not to worship the Lord. For all the people who have said, you know, what's in it for me? And, you know, all of this God stuff and Jesus stuff and Bible stuff. It seems to make it hard for me to be a businessman. It makes it hard for me to function. It makes makes it hard for me to satisfy my own desires. And Lord, we're reminded of what Jesus said. What does it profit a man? What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? What does it mean if a person decides to ignore God, ignore his love, ignore forgiveness, ignore grace, ignore truth, ignore hope, What happens when a person decides to live their lives apart from grace, apart from faith, apart from Christ? Heavenly Father, we pray that as we continue to look at the question and as we continue to explore the answers, that, Lord, you would fill our hearts with grace and compassion, humility, in a profound sense that maybe we don't have all of the answers but the most important answers are found in Christ the most hopeful answers are found in Christ the most needful answers are found in Christ and so again Lord we commit this time to you we pray these things in Jesus name Amen.